the most powerful gift that we could give another human being is our attention, is being present, because it is our most valuable resource. So being present is not just sitting down at dinner and intermittently checking our phone or looking over. It's, it's hearing what the other person is saying. It's seeing how they're saying it, the tone and the pace of the conversation, and really asking questions and responding. That element of being fully present is incredibly valuable. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am glad you're with us this week because I was not with you last week. Last week, I was away and did not release an episode, but I am excited to release the episode this week, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Charles Chaffin. Before we get into this episode with Dr. Chaffin, I would like to ask a favor. If you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy our guest, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It really helps, so I appreciate that. Dr. Charles Chaffin, who is he? If you don't know, well, he's a consultant, a researcher, educator, who focuses on super interesting areas around financial planning. His work intersects with cognitive psychology, education, and money, financial planning. For 12 years, he served as a director of academic initiatives at the CFP board. He has been the co-academic director of client psychology program at Wharton and director of teaching seminar at Columbia University. Dr. Chaffin has written and edited five books relating to financial planning, including his most recent book, which is super interesting and fascinating. The book is called Numb, How the Information Age Dulls Our Senses and How We Can Get Them Back. I highly recommend his book and his wonderful podcast, The Numb Podcast. During this interview, we talk about cognitive overload, especially cognitive overload with the amount of personal finance information we have accessible, how the very element or the essence of having all this information can actually overload us from a cognitive perspective. We talk about how to manage and retain and implement information. In this information age, we have so much information available that it's hard to implement and retain it. Listen to Dr. Chaffin's wonderful wisdom on how we can do that. And we talk about how we can actually use information to deepen our relationships, how to deal with distractions, the push and pulls that challenge our attention, and so much more. I really like this book and, and Dr. Chaffin's knowledge around this idea of managing our information because we are all exposed to so much information, especially, as I said before, around personal finances. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Charles Chaffin. Dr. Chaffin, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, the audio is great. I, you know, I don't know about, this, about the content, but at least the audio is good. <laughs> no, the content was great. It's, uh, 
I found myself just wanting to go into all the episodes and uh, that will be my next, my next podcast I run through. But thank you for joining me. You study so many different interesting topics, at least interesting to me. And I didn't know where to start, but I thought we would start with the book Numb. I can imagine writing this book is no simple task, especially as a researcher. You have a lot of information, is the premise of this book, a lot of information you want to talk about. When you look back at the writing process, all the research, the effort, the potential difficulties that you went through figuring out what should or shouldn't go in the book, how, if anything at all, did the experience of writing this book numb, change, modify, or alter your belief systems on the topic itself? Well, you know, there's there's nothing better than identifying that we have too much information and deciding to create more information. So <laughs> write a book and do a podcast. Let me get more out there. You know, my work started in attention. So even before I got to CFP board and started applying some of that to, to financial planning, really thinking about our attention and, and first of all, the importance of it. The the It is the gateway to our consciousness. Everything that we experience, everything that we that we see and comprehend and listen and touch and taste and whatever is through our attention and related. Not only is it important, but it's also fixed. There isn't a lot of it. So regardless of whether you're working in construction or financial planning or medicine or whatever it might be, our attention is a very valuable commodity. And so the reason why I wrote NUM is to help individuals manage that attention without technology and other forces managing it. And at the same time, I wanted to do it, getting to your question about the process of NUM, I wanted to do it in such a way that it was really relatable and accessible to a broader population. So you can't write a book about limited attention spans and it be 500 pages long. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it in such a way that most of the chapters are six, eight, 10 pages long. It's much harder to write a shorter book than it is a longer book. But I, I hope I did it in such a way that, that it's accessible to people, both in taking research and making it relevant, but also thinking about individuals' short attention spans. And just think about that last statement, the people's short attention spans. And in an age that we love to read the news article, and, and, and I mean, I say this too, and I, oh, I read this article, but no, I read the title. This idea of capturing people's attention, as you say, is... is it's very difficult. Something that I, I really did appreciate when uh, reading the book and uh, my paper copy that I got didn't come in yet, but I got the Kindle version and then I opened up the index or like the table of contents. I was like, whoa, there, there's a lot of chapters. And then I went in and like, to your point, it was nice and digestible. The word choices are very, very accessible and they're short, which I appreciate it. And it made me think about this idea of implementation science. And what I mean by this is that we have so much information, whether it's around financial planning or just anything, so much information. This is the point of your book, but it often it's so hard for us to implement this information. And I had a quote that I pulled out that I really liked about you talking in the book about why you wrote it. You said, it was not enough to identify the problems with the information age, many of which are quite apparent, but rather I wanted to present real solutions on a personal level. So my question is here is, what have you learned about the implementation of anything and how does that coexist, if anything at all, with our limited attention? I think most people are aware of the fact that 
we have shorter attention spans. And so, you know, writing a book about saying, you know, here's all these problems with social media and cable news and attention and pornography and everything else that's in there is not enough. It's really about, okay, what are the solutions relative to that? You know, your question as far as what I learned, I, you know, I interviewed 60 researchers and psychotherapists for this book because that element of the so what was really important. And so many, particularly of the therapists, really just, they centered around a lot of different things. But at a, at a 30,000 foot level, what I would say is there really has to be a reflective process that the reader or each individual has to go through to decide, okay, is my relationship with technology, is my relationship with information in general, is this really working for me? Because, you know, there's so many books out there right now that talk about things like dopamine fasts and people should just get off of social media and they should be watching television and they should, you know, here's 10 things that you should do to make your life better. That sounds really great. And it probably sells a few books and sells a few magazines. But the reality is it, every individual has to decide what's working for them and what's not. You know, the, the average amount of time that individuals spend on social media right now is 156 minutes a day, two and a half hours. To me, that is a huge cost. You know, what are we missing out on because of that? Interpersonal relationships, productivity, our marriages, our kids, our parents, our partners, whatever it might be. But again, it's got everyone's got to say, is this working for me or is it not? So the approach that I took with the book was hopefully at the end of it, it's a it's a kind of a journey diet to reinforce here's the issue, here are the data, the research behind what we're seeing, and then asking the reader the question, okay, is this working in a bit? If it's not, here's some solutions for it. And so I try to be really, really systematic about, about that approach with each one of these topics. You know, you said something there that I, I felt was important. And that's why I, I really appreciated this book is it wasn't just this sexy, appealing title with these sound bites that are really, really nice to hear, but not really effective. But you said the reflective process. Can you elaborate on, on how you feel like that can actually help us get the change we want? And again, reflective process might be a, a statement we understand, but I don't know if we actually understand what it what, what a reflective process actually means and can do for us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a matter of, of us each individually deciding what's working for us and what's not. I talk a lot about, for example, I talk a lot about loneliness in this book. Loneliness is is an epidemic. It was an epidemic before this pandemic, and it certainly is worse now. And there are a lot of people who used social media as a way to connect with other people. They're looking for connection in some way, shape, or form. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't really work. It doesn't establish deeper relationships. It's kind of an element of attention panhandling, or it's doom scrolling, or it's it's just a way for us to distract from, from bigger issues. And so one psychotherapist described social media in, in an interview saying that it's like, it's kind of like salt water. We're thirsty for deeper connections with other people and we drink the salt water and it just makes us thirstier because that comes at a cost of something. We've had the idea of attention. We only have so much of it. And if we're dedicating our attention to social media, that's at the cost of us having coffee or being more present with our partner at dinner or being more productive or whatever it might be. And so thinking about those types of things, all of us have to decide, well, wait a minute, you know what? I, I have five different social media apps on my phone and 
I'm still feeling lonely. I'm not connected to other people in, in a way that I would like to be. And that epiphany or that realization and that reflective process, it has to happen for every individual, you know, and once there's that realization, okay, here's the steps to, to move forward to try to fix the problem. But each individual has to identify themselves, whether their relationship with information in general and technology that delivers it is working for them or not in order to, to incite any element of change. Why I really clung on to that reflective process with the relationship of how we manage information, consume information is because a lot of our focus on the podcast is always on the relationship with money. And it's a very similar focus here is that we want to look at, is this working for us, my relationship with money or now with the information? I think it's such a good parallel because the demonizing scroll is, I think the word you said about that 2.5 oh, doom, scrolling. Yeah. doom scrolling that 2.5 hours is like a huge cost in terms of our, our lives. Like, like to your point about the attention. And, and I thought it was interesting in the book. And I'm curious if you can maybe elaborate up about it with social media. You, you talked about how people look for it for validation. And I hear you saying about loneliness is that we seem lonely and it's almost the, the saltwater facade that, okay, I can get, connection online, but it's making it worse. How about validation? If we're seeking out that validation, is it doing the same thing? Is it making us actually want more and more validation and that social media validation doesn't actually work? Well, absolutely. You know, and it's most prevalent with teenagers, adolescents. It's a huge problem, especially when it comes to to platforms like Instagram, where individuals and, and especially girls who are, you know, posting pictures of themselves and they're looking for they're looking for that validation about their appearance. And there are lots of harmful behaviors that come from that, including suicide. It, it happens far too much and it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. What tends to happen with a lot of people in social media, and this particularly skews younger, but not entirely, is that we start that idea of attention panhandling or validation. We start to, we start to see ourselves as content creators on social media. And what that does is not only does it put us in this dopamine loop that's been talked about lots where we post and then we go back and look and see if anyone's commented and we just have this loop of, of staying connected on these platforms, but it also impacts the activities and things that we take on in our lives. We start to think, well, if I go do this, I'm going to be able to post a picture about it or a video about it, Right. You know, and that could be little things like altering your vacation so that you could get good pictures for social media. You know, and there are lots of incidents. You could go online and find sites that talk about, you know, selfie accidents on cliffs that people have died next to trains because they've done these terrible things trying to get pictures. But it also impacts sometimes some people's day to day lives. And, and I, I use the example of the book, you know. The picture with, you know, on Facebook or Instagram, having lunch with grandma and grandpa, and there's the picture and you see the picture of the grandparents and they're like, what the hell are we taking a picture? We've had meatloaf together for 50 years. What the hell are we taking a picture for? You can just see it on their face. You're like, what are we doing for? And so you start to, you know, if you're thinking of yourself as a content creator, now you're changing elements of your life and you're saying, you know what? I don't want to go to church or my synagogue, or I don't want to go have lunch with my grandparents because that's not going to sizzle on my social media platform. <laughs> and it starts to change the activities that we take on in our lives in a, in a very deep and, and usually a relatively harmful way. Not because 
it's social media, but be, again, back to this reflective process, it's inconsistent with what the individual wants to do. You, being a content creator is a job. It's not living your life. And, and so it's not about judgment. It's about what's consistent with what the individual's goals are, what, they, what brings them happiness and joy and, and whatever. Yeah. And that, you know, I got that sentiment from the book as I was reading it, that it's all, it's about this identifying more of my, my own values and not necessarily what's happening outside. And then we get some clarity on how we make decisions. And again, it transfers to not just information management, but our, could we have more clarity about our relationship with food, money and experiences? But I have seen the, the holiday planned around the Insta, most Instagrammable spot and all the days around that and you know, if it doesn't get as many likes you want, is maybe the vacation was a bust. I feel like you did a really good job in your book talking about, now that we're on social media, it's making me think of this, is that you said that you don't want to completely demonize social media, that it also has some positive effects on human social socialization. And then you draw, drew it back to uh, something about it, it's just all around excess. So maybe can you just touch on your your beliefs around because we, you know, we've seen lots of positivity, but we see a lot of negativity that comes about with social media. Where is that balance, if there is one? Yeah, that's a big question. There's several facets to it. I think, I think one of them is if you have a group of family and friends that you're geographically isolated from, or you have individuals who maybe you're geographically isolated in general, and you want to connect with people that share some sort of lived experience, then there could be real values there. There could be real value in, in connecting with, with those folks as an accessory leading to something more what I call, and lots of other people call, authentic experiences. But it has to be a tool to authenticity. It can't be a destination, right? So that's the bigger key. The, the, the second point is when we get into this element of filter bubbles and confirmation bias, where we start to be part of groups that might be, it could be political, it could be sociological or whatever it might be, where the problems are, we are only connecting with like-minded individuals. And so what we tend to see are these echo chambers, a political element, and I'm very apolitical in the book, as you probably noticed, and I'm apolitical in the podcast, because it doesn't matter what my affiliation is, it matters that we're all discerning about all the information that we get. Well, we start only affiliating with people that share a same political affiliation as us. Then we start to get into elements of misinformation. So going back to attention panhandling, now if I want to get attention within that group, I'm going to post stories that are going to be seen as that content creator. And I'm going to share a story that's going to wow everybody, whether it's true or not, I'm going to post it to get that attention, Right individuals start to want to outdo one another with their, with their stated beliefs. I'm definitely not going to vote for that political affiliation. And then a person wants to one up that I'm actually going to campaign against that person and put something in my yard about that, that side of the political aisle. And then somebody goes even further than that. And now we're getting, and it doesn't matter whether it's the right or left. We're now getting to that point where, we're outdoing ourselves and it becomes more and more outrageous because we're trying to get that attention. We're trying to show that we are the most outraged, that we are the, we're, we're leading the group in some way, shape or form. So that could be a real challenge. And we see that with lots of people who they disconnect on some of these social media platforms with relatives 
who have a different political affiliation, right? Which is really, really sad. You know, there's the old adage that knowledge is power, and that's certainly true. But in some cases, it's not. Years and years ago, people didn't necessarily know the political affiliation of everyone in their family. And you know what? They didn't need to know. So sometimes we know these things and it doesn't really help. We start putting people within these identity buckets because of social media and we dismiss them as opposed to, so instead of trying to find a commonality, we're now focused on the tribes that we're in. So those are two pieces. There's, there's several others, but I think those are two of the, the big points. If we could be challenged, if we could find different perspectives and whatnot, and whether it's social media or whether it's the, the information that we're, you know, relative to cable news or what we're reading or listening or whatever, we're going to be better off. And if we could think about all these platforms relative to the first point in relationships as, a, as some sort of tool to something more authentic, we're going to be better off. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I mean, everybody has seen that that polarization and within family units and extended families and friends and beyond like that social media does. And is there a way you feel that we can use this? And I like how you said it's a tool, a tool to authenticity, authenticity. It's not the the end destination, but is there a way we can, do you feel that we can properly use information or social media in this case as a tool to deepen relationships? Thinking about if I'm connecting with someone that I let's say as a family member from far away or geographically isolated, but we're connected on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be. Okay. After a while of, instead of just reading their posts for a year or two years, maybe there's time to have a, at minimum, you have a phone call with them to talk about some of these things, right. And or get together with them. You're seeing that where they, you had no idea where they vacationed or whatever. Now you're starting to see vacation pictures. Maybe there's an opportunity to vacation with them because you have similar, you have similar interests and whatnot. At a 30,000 foot level, that's probably the best thing that we can do, but it's just not our connection is solely on social media. Again, one other thing I should probably mention here is that there's a severe element of FOMO that happens through a lot of this that pretty probably widely known, but I want to mention it One of the reasons why connecting with people that we don't know can be a problem is because a lot of us tend to curate our pictures in our lives for social media, right? Some people will take, you know, 50 pictures on their vacation and they will spread out those pictures that they post over months. (laughs) And if you don't know that person, you think, man, what a great life. You know, here I am going to work every day. I've got to, you know... Whatever they say, the person might say, I have a college degree. I've worked hard. And, you know, here's this guy, you know, Mark. I mean, he's vacationing two months out of the year. His life is way better than mine. And so you start evaluating your life choices. Whereas if you've got an uncle who you know that you're, you know, Facebook friends with and they're doing the same thing, you go, that's Uncle John. I know his life. I see what he's posted, but that's not the real deal. There's meaning that comes from it, but you also don't have the FOMO because you're not you're not competing against what really is a fictional life that people are trying to trying to create for themselves. I appreciate that answer because as I asked it, it could have been interpreted as quite intuitive. Well, yeah, question, but there's so much more deepness to that question. And your suggestion around instead of following the ant's post and potentially even judging it, pick up the phone and call and. Something so simple, yet we just don't, well, at least people around me, I, I recognize, don't do that as much, and even myself. So 
I appreciate that. And I mean, I, I look at social media and I connected with you over there and we're talking on this this podcast. So of course there's benefits, but I really like this idea of how can we deepen real real connections and use it as a tool along the way to authenticity. I really like that quote that you gave. I want to go back to attention because a lot of your work is is in and around attention. And there's a quote that made me think, or your work made me think about from Epictetus that says, you become what you give your attention to. A few minutes ago, you talked about how we want we want people to give us attention and that's that validation. We look for it on social media. So we're looking for other people to give us attention, but yet other people are taking our attention. Other social media maps, uh, apps are beyond social media. Why is it so difficult for us to manage our attention and what can we do? I know we've talked about some things now, but how can we start to take back that that attention? And I guess that goes back to the subtext of your book. How do, how do we get our sense of attention back? I kind of outlined what attention was and early. And one of the things that people tend to say about attention is that it's a spotlight. Our attention is shining on some particular element of something, some phenomenon, some experience, whatever it might be, but also filtering out what else is around that, whatever the spotlight is on. So it's not only a matter of what, what we're focusing, but it's also what we're not focusing on, right? We've created, there's, there's all kinds of data about this. You know, we've created, in two years, we create as much information as we did the entire history of the world before it, right? I mean, we're creating so much, there's so much information and there's so much noise out there in general that it becomes tougher and tougher to manage that spotlight, right? So there's a lot of things that we could do. And I talk about, I talk about several of them in the book, but at a 30,000 foot level, we have to be thinking, and this is where the ties to financial planning really come in here, is when we're goal-driven about what we're trying to accomplish. Our attention is a no different than our money. It's a very valuable, valuable commodity. I would argue that our attention is more valuable than our money, but they're both very, very important. So we have to be thinking about, is this allocation of this precious resource consistent with our goals or not? Every financial planner talks about that with clients, right? Is this consistent with where you want to go or is it not? And in some cases, you know, people tend to when they go through that process of reflecting and say, you know what, this isn't consistent with my goals. You know, I, I've already used the example about loneliness. I've been on social media for five years and I have actually fewer friends now, fewer meaningful relationships than I did before. The numbers of people right now that say that they have one close friend has gone down by, I, I think it's something like 75% in the past 30 years. There are people that say they don't even have one close friend and reflective process and saying, okay, is this leading me to authenticity? Do I have more people that are close to me? I think we have to think about what our goals are. And then we go ahead and say, okay, am I allocating my attention correctly? We can change our environment. No different than somebody when they talk about their money. Okay, we change our environment in terms of where we're spending, where we're investing. This investment of our attention could be something so small as I'm going to spend the next hour focused on this report or this dinner with my spouse, that's going to be the allocation of my attention. And I'm turning my phone off. I'm not going to be dedicating any resources, cognitive resources to anything else. And once we start changing our behavior and changing our environment, then we can start going ahead and investing our attention correctly. And I get lots of people who are readers or they're listeners to the podcast that say they're so connected. They're switching their attentional resources to so much from their phone, to Zoom, to this, to that. 
that an hour is too long. So, you know, I talk about then do 15 minutes. Can you have control of your attention for 15 minutes, whether that's in your work or whether that's with somebody else or whatever it might be and see that success and celebrate that victory that you are allocating your attention towards your goals, not somebody else's goals, not what mine are, but what you're wanting to get. And once you start to see that success, then you can maybe expand that time and do a little bit more. It's not about, you know, eliminating these apps. It's not about anything like that, but it's really about changing your environment to meet your goals. So that's where the connection, you know, I see it because I, I work in both of these spaces, but, but money and attention and those investments are, are, have a lot of parallels. When I look at personal finances, it's the same, like we, we could, we're talking about personal finance in a way, the whole conversation, because we have all the information available for personal finances, all the blogs, all the best books. You can buy the most intelligent person who wrote a book of 40 years of their financial lives for $20. But yet it's that implementation that, that gets really difficult. And when you zoom in, I guess it's the attention that helps us recognize or to even to give time to our reflective process so we can look at the actual behavior change. And that's why, again, I really appreciate your approach is you're looking at behavior change. It's not like you're trying to trick ourselves with willpower. And this is how you focus on the things you need to just by, I don't know, doing a to-do ta- task list. You're actually looking at behavior change. And it's something else that stuck out with me in the book that's making me think about this right now is when you talked about how attention is a zero-sum game. So meaning you know, we only have X amount of attention. And because in this, like this world that I see money is like rise and grind, work hard, work hard all day long. There's this idea that we can do so much. And then you got these app companies and these other things coming at us saying, take some of my attention. And then we're like, Oh, I can do it. You know, this prominent person on social media, he can do it all. And I'm sorry, he's such a nice smiling guy. I don't know the guy ever uh, at all, but The Rock, he's like working out at 4 a.m. and or 1 a.m. flying across the country. And and so like we then think like, oh, wait, if I want to be successful in business, in in finances, I got to rise and grind and do all this. So I see the exact parallel between what your book is and our financial decision making. So maybe we can go towards anything you came up when I'm talking or towards the fatigue that we get, the cognitive drain we get when we're now trying to allocate personal finance decisions, spending decisions, or anything in that realm? I would think about kind of what you're saying in kind of two different areas. I would think about it from the perspective of a cognitive psychologist, and then I would think about it from the perspective of a I guess of a human being. So on one side, not that cognitive psychologists (laughs) aren't human, although yeah, they're human-like anyway. So from the perspective of the science, we think we can multitask, but we can't. We basically have what's called a cognitive bottleneck. You can think about the the analogy always is that that information passing through us and into our into our minds really is like a one. It's like a one lane road. And you might have multiple cars trying to get get on that bridge to that one lane road, but that's all there is. And so, you know, it comes at the expense. You can switch attentional resources back and forth. But that, that creates other challenges and that, that does create fatigue in a lot of cases. We're not really designed for multitasking. I just got to say something. You just shattered so many people's beliefs and the resumes that says really good at multitasking. <laughs> but thank you for yeah, that. <laughs> we think we're good at it. And the reality is, you know, we can be present for those things, right? We can, you know, there are lots of research studies, including research studies that I've done. You know, everything that you know, looks at how we're you know, looking at our phones 
while we're watching TV and, and even as we're looking at our phones, we actually, you know, you ask people at the end of a at the end of a movie, well, what really happened? And if they're going back and forth, in a lot of cases, they miss very key points of what happened in the movie or vice versa, what's on their phone. So there are piles and piles of data that support that notion that we, we're just not designed for that. Our, our brains are really designed for 10,000 years ago. I mean, we still have primitive brains. We've, we've had all these upgrades in technology, but the biggest upgrade that we really need is, <laughs> is, is in our head so we don't have it. And the other piece of that is kind of on the personal side. And that is, especially if you are, if you, you're a spouse, you're a partner, you're a parent, you're a, you're a child, you're a, you're a financial advisor, the most powerful gift that we could give another human being is our attention, is being present, because it is our most valuable resource. So being present is not just sitting down at dinner and intermittently checking our phone or looking over, it's, it's hearing what the other person is saying, it's seeing how they're saying it, the tone and the pace of the conversation and really asking questions and responding. And if you think about that, even in an interview like this, you know, I spent years on this book. It requires me to be attentive to what you're saying to make sure that this is a worthwhile, I don't know if it's going to be worthwhile or not for your listeners, but for in order for it to be worthwhile, I can't be looking at my phone or thinking about what's going to happen at lunch. I have to be attentive to you, how you're talking, how you're asking me these questions and, and thinking about your listener and where they may be and, and all of this and whatnot. And that's no different than the people that we work with, the people that are, are in our lives. And so being present, in my opinion, is the most valuable thing that we can give. And presence, not just sitting there doing other things, but present is focusing our attention on what they're doing. And if, and if again, if that's an exercise that people want to do and they feel like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know how I can do this for a long time, then start with short, short times where you're going to put the phone down. And by the way, there are lots of, lots of research that suggests even putting the people like to put the phone face down in front of them. You're still devoting cognitive resources. Turn it off, put it in the bag or put it in the other room. But that element of being fully present is incredibly valuable. And I think that we shortchange ourselves when we are just trying to kind of multitask because we're not getting the best out of our work. Maybe even it's just a conversation with a coworker. And we're not getting the best out of our relationships because we're not giving all to what we have because we're just, again, not designed to, to multitask. Great answer. I'm, I'm stuttering because it's like, wow, which way do I go? And we work to have a good life. I mean, there's different elements. Of course, we need to provide safety, security, and bring to our family. Once we're above that, those basic needs, we work to have a fulfilling life to some degree. But yet how much is our attention to your point on this phone in the, without the fan, like you're at dinner and you're not present and we're just thinking about work, but yet the whole concept of work is to be able to, you know, have some leisure time so that we can enjoy. I mean, there's fulfillment within work, but you just got me thinking about like, yeah, that attention is just, it is the outside of pain for basic resources. And it's such a valuable commodity. And you said earlier, attention can be more valuable than money. I wonder if it was coincidental that the word present, like I'm present, is the same word as giving a present. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, but yeah. I, it is certainly being present is, a, is an incredible gift. And as I said, the most valuable gift we could give to someone. It's absolutely true. You touched earlier, you talked about loneliness and validation and what a way to make someone feel more connected and validated. If you actually, to your point, listen to hear them, to see them, to understand them and not just 
mentally scrolling through your own Facebook in your mind? There are some people that when they're around other people, they're, you know, the word is uh, flubbing, right? We're on our phones. Someone's sitting next to us, a friend of ours, and we're on our phones texting or are scrolling. There are some people who do that. And at the same time, they turn around and talk about being lonely. As one psychotherapist said on an episode of the podcast, Linda Bloom, she made the comment that resonated with me. We earn the deep relationships we have in our lives. We earn them. And there's a lot to that when it comes to behaviors and whatnot. But for what we're talking about today, earning that to me starts with being being fully present. Who wants to be around someone that's not present? Right? You know, who wants that? You know, and this isn't an ad for my podcast, but I always end my every episode of my podcast with if you're not where you are, you're nowhere. And this is precisely what I'm talking about. You know, you're you're meeting with somebody, whoever it might be, and your mind is somewhere else. Well, you're not there either. You're not fully there either if you're texting them or looking at their selfie. So where the hell are you? You're not at dinner. You're not there. You're nowhere. You're not anywhere. And that doesn't help anybody. Someone once said to me, and I thought about this earlier, I just didn't say it, but now it's coming up again, is, is an experience an experience if you don't experience it? And if... You know, to your point, if you're not there, where are you? Dan Gilbert has a, he did a study. It's, a, it's been around for a while. I, I think, I think he did it in 2010 and he was talking about our, our minds kind of wandering and, and, you know, he, his quote is a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And I talk about this in the book too, that, we, you know, over half of us, our minds are somewhere else than where we are. And this gets a, not so much about distraction here. We're kind of going into, if we're thinking about our work or, or whatever it might be, we have, we have two different types of distractions. We just talked about the external, but there's also these internal distractions, which is, which is where a wandering mind is. And so in a lot of cases, you know, like I have given my work, you know, I'll have friends ask about that. And the, the best example of that is if you have two weeks off from work, you may not want to leave for your vacation immediately. You might want to take a couple of days and really become more present before you go. Cause the, because you are where you are mentally if you're going to be thinking about work while you're in Hawaii, why the hell are you paying for a hotel? Well, you're not going to be experiencing that, right? But we all see uh, a huge presence of not just the external distractions, but also the internal as well. You call that the push and pulls that challenge our attention, I believe, in the book when you relate to d- distractions. And geez, even you, as you say that, I just think about myself. There's times where I'm like, I've created this belief that if you, you got to be busy to be successful or this or be productive. And there have been times where I've worked until like 10 minutes before I have to go to the airport and then you're just scattered. And that's a really good suggestion is putting this buffer zone to catch up to where you are. I I always think about that people say they're doing something and then they're distracted. The data suggests that if you're fully focused on something and you get distracted, it takes 22 minutes to get you back to be full, to be having your attention or resources fully engaged in what it was that you were doing. And so, you know, what tends to happen with distraction in the book, I talk about mowing the lawn. So somebody has a push mower and they're mowing the lawn and they got their phone out every five minutes. They want to check their phone for whatever reason, right? Which causes the time it takes you to cut the grass from an hour to an hour and a half. What we tend to do in our lives is we start to say, well, it takes an hour and a half to cut the grass. Well, no, it doesn't. That's what you were doing, but you were distracted during that time. So going back to these changing our behavior, changing our environment, 
we have to be thinking about, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I'm not suggesting people can't have their phones with them when they're cutting the grass, but just knowing there are costs that come from these types of distractions. But the 22 minutes can add up. It can add up pretty quickly. Oh, I mean, going back to this idea, attention is so valuable even compared to money. It's like, if we're not careful, we can distract ourselves from life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we live in an attention economy, right? You know, as Herbert Simon talked about that decades ago, and it really, it's, it, we think about it from whether it's marketers, whether it's relative to relationships, whether it's relative to, to our work, we live in an economy now where if I can get your attention, your wallet will follow. It's about the attention first and that, that precious commodity. That's what this fight is all about. Because without your attention, going back to it being the gateway to our consciousness and being this valuable element, I'm not going to get your wallet. I'm not going to get love from you if you're, if you're a spouse or partner. I'm not going to get attention or whatever it might or your attention and care rather without that gateway to our consciousness. Yeah, it is. It is a gift giving someone your attention. Normally on a finance podcast, we would talk about techniques around finances. One might think of financial budget, but all this conversation around attention. In your book, you talk about attention budget. I guess people are like, oh, that makes sense. Like, but again, let, let's hear your thought process behind it. Because when I was reading that, I'm like, this is, this is brilliant. I love this. And as we listen to this, I want people and myself included to listen to like hearing the information versus actually thinking about reflecting on it and implementing it. So what is attention budget? I've always wanted to design and there's lots of other psychologists that would like to have this too. But at the end of the day that you would get a report saying where exactly you allocated your attention or resources throughout that day. No different than, you know, Mint, right? Mint is a great app, right? And there's, there's several others out there that can track, track your spending. You know, that's the key. But you can kind of go through a process and say, where did I spend my attention today? Every Sunday morning, you get, your, get a push notification saying what your screen time was if you've got an iPhone. But going through that process again, say, okay, is my money working for me? Am I investing it correctly? I have three goals, but I'm stopping at the casino every night on my way home from work. Okay, well, you know, your money's not. Your behaviors are not working for what your long-term goals are. And it's the same thing when it comes to our attention, right? What are our goals? And thinking about it in the shorter term, you know, lots of financial planners, we want to talk about, we want to talk about time horizon, right? We want to talk about a longer time horizon and think about, okay, where do we want to be financially relative to our retirement, relative to the next 10 years or whatever it might be? I think about attention and that process, if you've never done it before, I think about starting shorter. If that is something that's a real challenge and you're listening to this and saying, yeah, I'm all over the place. I'm one of these people that's on my on a screen five to six hours a day. Then let's start shorter. Here are the three things that need to happen today that I want to have done. And and I need to make sure that I'm altering my screen time based upon that. Then think more longer term. I'm gonna focus my attention more. No screens when I'm when I'm with my spouse or partner. No distractions. Or no, I got to get this report done. No distractions. I'm shutting everything off or I'm shutting everything else, my kids or whatever it might be. And then we think more longer term. So that element of a budget is exactly the same. If I have $10, I could spend five of it here and five of it there. That's all I've got. Attention is the same thing. I've got a day's worth of attentional resources. I got to figure out where it's going to work the best for me to make, to make me productive, to make me happy, to make me successful. Yeah, I think it's just really, really insightful 
for a second there, it came up to me like, well, I don't have time for that. But then there's this distraction thing. We need to have time for that because like we've been talking about, we become our attention or what we focus our attention on. We create that path in life. So I, I really find it fascinating, your work around attention and decision-making and managing all this information, but also your work that you've been doing with the CFP board and personal or financial planning in general. Financial planning has been around for uh, officially like 50, over 50 years. The integration of client psychology and psychology with money is relatively new. And you were part of a really good book called Client Psychology. When you look at the future or even the short-term future, because I like this idea of not too far, like just a short-term of future, what excites you the most about these two disciplines merging together? I was with CFP board for 12 years. And, you know, when I first started, one of the things that practitioners talked about, and I would gauge practitioners relative to the program at Wharton or Columbia or some of the other things that we, that we were doing, and we always talk about the art of financial planning. And I always had a huge problem with that. And I would give talks and financial planners would get all mad at me because I would they'd say, there is an art of financial planning. There's an art and there's a science. And they would see, you know, the science being estate planning, tax and investment, the retirement planning, and the art would be the human side. They would call the soft skills, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't really care for that term either. Well, in reality, the art of financial planning is the human side of financial planning. There are lots and lots and lots of research and lots of disciplines that have dedicated decades <laughs> upon the lens, the perception, the behaviors of human beings and relative to money. And so now we're getting to a point where for lots of different reasons, most notably because of technology, that this profession has to, has to maintain its relevance. And the way to do that is the human side. And the way to do that is to build each planner having what I call a toolbox, things that they can do relative to the person that's that the client that's on the Zoom call with the client that's sitting on the other side of the desk and not having the same advice and the same reaction to each individual, but having some element of vigilance and discernment saying, here's what I'm hearing, here's what I'm seeing. Let me see what's going to work here so that I can have that deeper relationship with the client and help them meet their goals, what they want. Again, it goes back to this idea, what is it that's consistent with what they want? And so, you know, some of the work that I did at CFP board was bringing in some of my own work in psychology and bringing some of those other disciplines in too that have been looking at the human side for a long time. You know, social work has been around for a long, there's lots of things that are social work that have great relevance to financial planning. So we're getting to a point now and CFP board has new requirements that focus on the psychology of financial planning. And it's a really, really exciting time so that we, so that we don't say, well, there's an art of financial planning and I can't really describe it. It's just kind of the soft skill <laughs> thing. You'll figure it out. Once you get about 15 years of experience as a practitioner, you'll figure it out. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what the hell happens in years one through 14? I mean, what about those clients? I mean, I always found that ridiculous. So I think we can get to a point where we, we've gone through this space. We went through this space where it was all about all of these primary topics. And then it was, okay, let's talk about communication. But the communication was all about talking at them, what I was going to say. Yeah. And yeah. now it's about being client-centered at a mm-hmm. third. And that's just... That's part of a maturity of a profession. It's part of a profession that wants to maintain its relevance. So it, it, it is an exciting time. 
Oh, I love that answer. And and our profession, my background is a financial planner, is we need individuals like yourself to br- actually bring the science into it. I want to be respectful of your time here. So the question I ask everybody is, let's fast forward to to life and whatever year or however old you are at that point. Imagine yourself somewhere that brings you peace. You're content. Maybe it's Palm Springs. Maybe it's uh, looking at an ocean. Maybe it's looking at a mountain. Wherever brings you peace and you decide to write a letter for the next generations on what you've learned on how to have a happy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? And I read about this in the book, going back to the parallels that we had between our investment of our intention and our investment of our money. And I, I write in the book talking about there's social media or sitting on, you know, watching cable news for three hours and arguing with people on Twitter or whatever the hell people are doing. There are any other number of things that are part of the book. And I, you know, and the book talks about dating apps and porn and all that other stuff that's that's under this umbrella of information. I think we at the end of our lives, relative to both of these things, we have to say, was this investment worth it? Was this investment of our money? Did it lead us towards happiness? Was this investment on if we're on Instagram for five hours a day, was it worth it? Was it a tool towards authenticity for us and made us happy or didn't it? And if your answer to that question is, this was a good investment, then no need to proceed to question two. We're done. Then that's fine. And again, there's, it's, it's just without judgment. And that's a, right? and a, and a great planner is also a planner that's without judgment. The worldview of the client is what we're talking about, right? We're trying to better understand that worldview so that we could have a deeper relationship. It's the same thing when it comes to, to the work in NUM. Is this investment worth it? Is the ROI there? And everyone has, has to have their, has their own answer to that. I worry, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book and do this work, is that it's, it's not working for a lot of people. And I'm hoping that, that this and and all the relative to planning, all the, the folks that are working at planning are helping people. So they get to the point saying, yeah, this investment, what led to a good destination for me? What a great answer. Was it worth it? And I love how you talk about is what's their own answer. Uh, this has been a very thought provoking conversation for me. I want you to tell people where they can find the book, more information about yourself. But before you answer that, while you're writing this book, what song would be on in the background? That's a hard question. When I wrote most of this book, it was during the quarantine. It was during the early points of being in New York or being in DC. I was going back and forth of lockdown. And so lots of times it was just, I would just have a lot of radio stations on in the background because that was just, it was just some element of having, I, I try I do my best work when there is some element of music. Usually it's instrumental music, but I can't pinpoint what exact song, but during that time, it was, it was, there was some element of vigilance thinking, okay, you know, what's going on in this crazy world right now during the, during the quarantine. So that was kind of playing in the background. Relative to where you can find me, I'm at charleschapin.com and I, I do all kinds of consulting and speaking and writing and all different sorts of things. So and I, so I appreciate that. Appreciate the question. Yeah. I'll include that in the show notes and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Charles Chaffin. I highly recommend you buy a copy of his book. It is fantastic. Until next week, 
Have yourself a good one.